Now, you know I like to start with a question, right? You've been coming long enough that you know I like questions. So my first question this morning is, what is your favorite food combination? What is your favorite food combination? For instance, you might say eggs and bacon. There's a food combination, a duet, two things that are okay on their own, but when you put them together, man, it's a beautiful thing. So that's an example And this is not a rhetorical question. I want you to just shout out some of your favorite food combinations. What are they? All right, peanut butter and jelly. Excellent. We had a single guy said that first service. Peanut butter and jelly. Anybody else? Peanut butter and jelly. Surf and turf. Okay, good. Ice cream and brownies. All right. I'm coming to your house for dessert. So some of you guys know that Saturday nights, I stay up late, I study. And when I study, I get the munchies for study food. And for me, there is no better study food than cookies and milk. Oh, man. I'm 51 years old, and I still love cookies and milk. I think God designed the cow with milk just to wash down cookies, just something to go with the cookies, because they just make a beautiful combination. And that's all fun to think about, and and now you're all hungry, and you're thinking about lunch rather than the sermon. So let me get your attention back again. What does this have to do with Daniel chapter 9? Well, if you've been around and following through Daniel, we've been captivated by some of the stunning and illustrative language and pictures that have been painted of the visions that have been had by Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar or Daniel himself. Last time we talked about Daniel, it was the ram and the goat and this vision that he had of the Persian Empire and the Greek Empire and all very flowery and all very illustrative and we move from the visually stunning dreams and interpretations down to Daniel 9, which is this very practical combination, this spiritual duet, if you would, that always are better together than separately, and that is the Word of God and prayer. Eggs and toast might be great, and spaghetti and meatballs are fine, but when it comes to spiritual life, the most powerful combination for a Christian person is the incorporation of the Word of God and prayer. Those two things go hand in hand like peanut butter and jelly. And if you found your prayer life to be maybe boring or unfulfilling or non-existent, you can take a cue from Daniel chapter 9 and try to marry together prayer with your devotional life. That's what Daniel does. That's what many mature spiritual people do. They let their prayer be directed and informed and motivated by what they're reading in the Word of God that day, or that week, or whatever the case might be, that hour, that lunch period. And as you read it, you can say, okay, God, I want you to do that in my life. What you said right there, I want to understand that better. And you can let that be your prayer. Matter of fact, in Acts chapter 6, we're introduced to the deacon ministry. It was because there were practical needs in the body, and the disciples knew that they couldn't do everything themselves. They can't mow the grass and unclog the toilets and wash the carpets and do counseling. So the deacons were there to take the responsibility of the practical needs of the body so that the disciples or the pastors can give themselves, and this is what it says in Acts 6, to prayer and the ministry of the word. I mean, if I spent all week meeting people's practical needs as a pastor, Sunday would come like, geez, I didn't get any time in the word. So I don't know what this passage really means. So I have to have time to study and spend time with the Lord to be able to come Sunday morning and say, hey, here's what I've been studying. Here's what I've been thinking. 
So this is how it works. Prayer and the ministry of the word. So pay attention as we go through Daniel 9, which is a whole section on Daniel's prayer. And by the way, the second half, we're only doing verses 1 through 19, which is going to take long enough. The second half is possibly one of the most difficult passages in the Bible and certainly one of the most powerful prophecies, if not the most important prophecy in the entire Bible. It's the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. So if you've never heard about that or you don't know what it is, it is fascinating and challenging. And I think you'll enjoy going through that together. But for today, what I want you to pay attention to as we read together is how does Daniel know what to pray? I've already tipped my hand a little bit, so you kind of already know. But pay attention to how it works out in Daniel's life. And what does he understand about God? How does he see God? And how does he see himself? Three simple yet important things. How does Daniel know how to pray? How does he understand the God he's praying to? And how does he understand his own life as someone who prays to the living God? There's nothing more pure, I think, than how a human prays when no one is watching. When people are watching, we end up changing our prayers, maybe trying to please people that are around the group or maybe saying things and not really meaning them. We're just kind of saying what sounds right. But when you pray alone, when you pray privately, when no one's watching you, you can be genuine and open before God. And there's nothing more instructive to me than listening to a mature Christian talk to their living God. I mean, it's a beautiful thing when you hear someone mature who's walked with God, who's been around the block a few times, talk to God and how they talk to God. It was the disciples that came to Jesus and they didn't say, Jesus, we want you to teach us about benevolence. We want you to teach us how to preach. They said to him, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. So as we get into Daniel chapter nine, those are the thoughts I want you to bring into the chapter with you. Are you ready with that introduction? Verse one of chapter nine says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, this is now the Medo-Persian empire, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, the ancient Babylonian people. In the first year of his reign, so we can date that, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So now remember, Daniel was taken as a young man, teenager, into captivity during the first, what we call the first deportation as Babylon came and conquered, Nebuchadnezzar came and conquered Jerusalem, carted off the best and the brightest, took him over to Babylon. 605 BC is the year of that. And then ultimately he goes on to destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, to sack the city altogether. So Daniel grew up, basically his whole life was spent in Babylon. That's where he spent his whole adult life. And as he's there now, he's lived through Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. He's seen some of the things and the dreams come true. He's in the Medo-Persian Empire. It's the first year. And he's reading his Bible. He's reading his Bible. He's got a personal prayer life, which we know about. He's got a personal devotional life. And I love this because Daniel has what I call a light bulb moment. Have you ever had one of those? I remember the first Bible study I showed up as a new Christian. I didn't know nothing from nothing from nothing. 
and I showed up at Bible study and I had tried to read the Bible and didn't get it. And I remember saying, I've read this and I don't get it. Have you ever said that? Don't get it. Well, stick with it. Stick with it. Because as you do and as you seek and search, understanding comes. And here's Daniel and he is reading the Bible and he says, I understood. I understood. Now that's fantastic. It's one of the most exhilarating experiences that you can have as a believer when all of a sudden the scales fall off and you go, huh, I get it. And not just get it on a head level, I get it on a heart level. I own it. My confession to you as a pastor is that for 16 years, I've been preaching the word of God. And there's a lot of times I've preached things that I don't fully understand or fully own myself. Is that weird to say for me? Do you understand what I'm saying is that I've preached and I've, I've read a passage and I go, you know, I'm reading about this but I'm not sure I fully get it. But this is what it says. And so I'm going to say what it says. And then at some later time, you go, oh, now I get it. Maybe it was a new experience you had or someone explained it a different way. But all of a sudden you have that revelation come to you, that light bulb moment. You go, oh, now I get it. The greatest compliment that I've ever been paid as a pastor, as a preaching pastor, is when you preach, I understand. I understand. We're going to keep the cookies on the low shelf because people need to understand God's word. I think about the Ethiopian eunuch in there in the book of Acts, and he's reading the scroll of Isaiah. He's going, I don't get it. And Philip comes jogging up next to the chariot, says, hey, what you reading? He says, I'm reading about this passage, you know, and I, I don't really get, is the prophet talking about himself or is he talking about somebody else? And then Philip began to preach to him, Jesus from Isaiah 53. And he got it. He got it. So preaching helps. Sometimes it's just in your devotional life that God opens the door and he goes, hey, all of a sudden understanding comes. So Daniel reminds me, listen carefully. Daniel reminds me of one particular thing that you are never too old or too knowledgeable to learn. Guess how old Daniel is when he understands this? Guess how old? Roughly 80 years old. There are two reasons people cease to learn. And I would encourage you, be a lifetime learner. It's really good for your brain. It's really good for your life. Give yourself to the word of God. Because there's two reasons. Number one is people think they can't. I'm not smart enough. Doesn't the Bible say God gives understanding to the simple? Isn't that what the Bible says? God gives understanding to the simple. How many of you are thankful for that? Amen. Sometimes we preachers try to make it complicated, but God gives understanding to the simple. You might think, well, I don't know. I can't. I'll never understand the Bible. Stick with it. You have the spirit of God helping interpret for you. And you will. I guarantee you. I promise you. If you stick with studying is diving into the word of God, putting yourself in Bible studies, listening to sermons, reading commentaries, whatever it is you got to do, it's worth it to understand the word of God. But if you think you can't, then you'll never try. That's one reason. The other reason is people think they don't need to. Oh, pastor, I've been walking with the Lord for 50 years and, and I've read Genesis 17 times and I've read Job and I've, yeah, I already know. I Yes, I know. Well, if you think you know it all, then you have nothing left to learn. And then you stop learning. But Daniel would have an issue with you, wouldn't he? Living his whole life for the Lord in Babylon at 80 years old, he goes, ah, new revelation. Praise the Lord. He understood. How did he understand? He understood by the books. He was reading the Bible or what he had of the Bible. He was reading Jeremiah. And what does he discover? 
Read it again. Look what he discovers. He discovers that God was doing something for a certain period of time. And the future, when Jeremiah wrote it, it was future. And Daniel discovered that the future is now for him. First, you have to do the math. The math, 538 BC is the current year. The first year of Darius, that's 538 BC. The year Daniel got deported from Jerusalem was 605. So do the math. You don't have to. I'll do it for you. That's about 67 years. So Daniel reads, plain as day in the book of Jeremiah, it's going to be 70 years. And he goes, wait a second. Takes his sandals off, counting his toes. He's got 67 years. We're going home soon. Because Daniel believed that the word of God was both literal and trustworthy. The word of God is literal where it's meant to be taken literally. And it's trustworthy everywhere. So because Daniel read that, he goes, ah, now I get it. It's going to be 70 years because he was reading Jeremiah. Jeremiah, by the way, we're going to read 25, 29, some excerpts from there. Jeremiah had a 40-year ministry. He spanned five different kings. When Daniel was born, Jeremiah was the Billy Graham of his day, except the difference was nobody liked Jeremiah. Everybody likes Billy Graham. Even people that aren't Christians like Billy Graham. But Jeremiah was not popular because his message was really unpopular. Jeremiah had a hard message to preach. God told Jeremiah what he was doing. God said, Jeremiah, I'm going to bring the people into captivity 70 years, and then I'll bring them home and tell them that this is my plan. And if they trust me, they'll submit themselves. They'll yield. This is crazy, right? You see why they run Jeremiah out of town? Because he told God's people to submit to servitude in Babylon. In Jeremiah 29, he says, look, build houses in Babylon get married, settle down, increase, prosper while you're there. And then I'm going to bring you home, but it's going to be 70 years. So you can pray all day long, every day at year 30 for God to bring them home. Is it going to happen? Not going to happen. God said it's going to be 70 years. And Jeremiah said, yes, submit to Babylon, go into captivity. Now, if I lived at Jeremiah's time and I heard a preacher preaching God says he wants you to go ahead and go into captivity to save your life. And those that resist, because this is Babylon, is Nebuchadnezzar is God's instrument. This is God's plan. So by resisting Nebuchadnezzar, you're resisting God. If I had heard a preacher saying that, if I heard Jeremiah, I might have said, ah, I don't know if I can buy that, Jeremiah. I think I would have had a hard time. Like they had a hard time. And you think about that in the context of our political tensions. I think November is going to be an ugly month. Any way you slice it, it's going to be an ugly month. And you might have your plans and your thoughts of how God should do it. You probably told him a thousand times what you want him to do. But Jeremiah is the same one that said, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are so much higher. And his ways are so much higher than ours. So whoever wins the election in November, we can say, this is God's choice. And we can build houses and prosper under whatever government we're under because we have the spirit of God and God is doing something, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, God is doing something maybe bigger than you had expected. Challenging stuff, isn't it? I can tell by your silence. Look, God's will is not always as straightforward as we want it to be, is it? Because God has a long-term vision. We live in a country right now that mostly identifies with no religious affiliation. 
the majority now. No religious affiliation. We are making our own decisions apart from God as a nation, as a leadership. So God may need to let us go down farther if that's what it takes for people to turn to him. Because what matters to God is not 2020. What matters to God is eternity. And if he's got to take America down a few more notches, we've enjoyed, we've rode the train of blessing of God for so long that we've forgotten that it was God that brought the blessing in the first place. And we may need to learn a lesson and we may need to destroy ourselves culturally so that we can turn back to God so he can heal us. Now, I don't know. I don't know what God is going to do. Maybe he'll hear our prayers now and rescue. I don't know what God is going to do, but I know it's going to be good. Amen. Why 70 years? Well, for 490 years from David on to the captivity, they had neglected something called the Sabbath year. There's a Sabbath day, one out of every seven. The seventh day is the Sabbath day. There's a Sabbath year that God wanted them to do too. Every seventh year, in terms of their jobs, their agricultural endeavors, God said, look, seventh year, don't crank up your tractor. Don't plant the seeds. Just give the land a rest. Whatever grows up by itself naturally. We have this gigantic butternut squash vine that has grown out of our compost pile. I mean, I didn't plant it. I mean, this thing is humongous. We're going to be eating butternut squash for the next 10 years because it's a huge vine, but I didn't plant it. It grew naturally out of a seed that was dropped to the ground or put in the compost pile. So God said, every sixth year, I'm going to bless you enough for three years. So can beans and tomatoes until your heart is content. But then the next year, don't plant anything. He says, you know what? I want my people to take a year off. That sounds like a commandment I can wrap my head around. You? I mean, of all the commandments to disobey, the commandment to take a year off. But think about the culture we live in. Think how hard it is to take time off. And God told them, take time off. You got to trust me. I'm going to give you all you need. Six years, seventh year, take the time off. Whatever grows, you can eat it. But sure, everybody gets to come and eat it. And they didn't do it. They didn't do it. They worked around the clock year after year. And God says, well, you owe me 70 years. That's 490 divided by seven. You owe me 70 years and I'm going to take it in a lump sum. So in order to make the land rest, I got to get you out of there. And he said it in Leviticus. If you don't obey my commandments, I'm going to deport you to another place so that while you're there on your servitude vacation, your vacation of oppression, I'm going to let your land is going to rest. And then when it gets 70 years of rest, I'm going to bring you back. 70 years, that's how that works out. So now Daniel knows what God is doing. And you would think that it's like, okay, God said what he's going to do. It's going to be 70 years. It's been 67. I can sit back and chill for three years and then it's a done deal. Boom. I can just wait. But that's not how Daniel approaches this. Look at verse three. We're making blistering time now, aren't we, through the word of God. I then, verse three says, I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I'll show you why in a few minutes when we get into Jeremiah 29. Notice that the study of prophecy and the word of Jeremiah motivated Daniel not to laziness, but to pray. To pray for what he knew God was going to do. Now, hang on to that thought. 
look at Daniel's preparation to pray. I want you to notice three things about Daniel as he sets himself to pray. Because I find that people really struggle with prayer. I've never met someone that says, yeah, I'm really satisfied with my prayer life. And I think people really struggle with what prayer really looks like. And we get a couple of things to notice here. Look at the way he prepares himself. He says, I set my face toward the Lord God. Now, my wife is awesome. She's a wonderful woman, wonderfully honest. And she knows her husband. And she knows that if I'm on my computer and she's talking to me, I can go, uh-huh, mm-hmm. You, yep, yep, oh, got it, got it, honey. And she knows I am not paying attention. And the proof of that is then she says, well, did you do it? And I say, do what? <laughs> so now she's learned over the years that if I'm on my computer and she has something serious, important to tell me, she will grab my face, turn it towards herself, and she will say, As, look at me when I'm talking to you. Uh-huh. <laughs> she wants my attention. Daniel, in a time when so many people had set their face away from God, toward idolatry, running away from God, Daniel set his face toward God. It's a very mature thing that Daniel does. Let me give you one more example. When my kids were getting older, as they were coming into their teenage years, I remember that time when we sort of crossed that line when we go to McDonald's and it came time to order, I remember thinking, you know what? You're old enough now. Why don't you order your own food? And encouraging them to speak and communicate for themselves to adults. It took transition. And I've been with parents and their kids, and I've watched as I'll talk to the teenager, I'll say something, and immediately the parent jumps in and answers for them. Oh, this is not good. Part of maturity is learning to communicate with adults. For yourself. Part of maturity spiritually is learning to face God yourself. You can't hide behind the pastor all the time. Now, I'm glad to pray for you, and I will pray for you, and I'll pray with you. But there comes a time when you have to face God in honesty yourself. That's part of growing up spiritually, learning to communicate with God. So that's his directness with God. Denial is involved. He's fasting because when you're grieving, or when you're feeling like you've failed, you're not hungry. Food is not the first thing on my mind. I'm not interested in food right now. So he's fasting. And what's he wearing? Has he got on the suit and tie? He's wearing a potato sack. And instead of putting on deodorant, it's like he's rolled around in the fire pit. It's a sign of grief. Daniel's outside very much matches his inside, which is why people traditionally wear black when it comes to funerals, because we are mourning, we're grieving, and it's a sign that I'm hurting. And it's an interesting thing now. People say, well, don't wear black to my, and I'm not arguing for or against, but don't wear black to my funeral because I know where I'm going. I'm cool. You celebrate for me. Well, that's hard to do because I miss you and I love you and I'm grieving. So black is an expression of grief. That's all it is. I know the truth about heaven and all that. And I know where you're going, but I can still miss you, can't I? I can still grieve, can't I? But we've vilified sadness for some reason in our culture. If you're sad, something's wrong with you, and that's not always so. Daniel denies himself food because he's not interested in eating, and his demeanor is humble as he prays. So can you guess what kind of prayer is coming? 
You think the next line I'm going to read is, and Daniel prayed, he said, oh God, I am so full of praise and thanksgiving right now. You think that's what he's about to pray? Based on what you see, his outside is matching his inside. Is he feeling victorious or is he feeling broken? Take a guess. He's feeling broken. That's a legitimate feeling. Look, if you're going to endeavor to read the word of God and you're going to endeavor to let prayer come from your reading of the word of God, there's going to be times when you're going to read things in God's word and you're going to experience brokenness. Have you ever read God's word and said, wow, oh yeah, I do that. I do that. And I didn't know it was wrong until now. And now I know it's wrong. I remember the first experience I had with conviction. Like I read the word and actually it was through somebody that was ministering to me. They said, well, Steve, you do that? I said, yeah, that's against the word of God. That's against the heart of God. I said, really? I didn't know. And I learned and I remember experiencing like, wow, I can't believe I lived that way because now I see what pleases God, what God says is healthy and good is this. So Daniel, in this case, brokenness. Look at what he says, verse four. And I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made confession, made confession and said, and now we get his prayer. Oh, Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. So right out of the starting gate, Daniel is nailing. I mean, Daniel is not full of bitterness. He's not full of blame. By the way, keep this in mind, a very pertinent observation. Daniel is not a preacher, not primarily. He's not primarily an evangelist. What is Daniel? Do you remember? Daniel is primarily a lifelong politician. He is raised up through the ranks of the political structure in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar and then on through and now even under the Medes and Persians. He served as an ambassador under the Babylonian empire. He is a politician. What would you give to hear a politician stand up and say, I have sinned. I have sinned against God. Our party has sinned. We have disregarded the word of God. We have disregarded the Bible. But look at what he says. He says, verse five, we have sinned. That's something a Republican can say. And that's something a Democrat can say. Isn't that wonderful? We can meet on wonderful common ground. We're so busy trying to convince other people why we are most important, why our group is the right group. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't argue for certain values in our culture. We should. But at the end of the day, what colors our conversation is that none of us have it totally right because we're all human. And every human being will be subject to personal bias, selfishness, and sinful thoughts. Am I speaking the truth? So we just get that straight right out of the starting gate. And we recognize the only one who is great and awesome is God. Me, I'm somewhat less than great and awesome. And he says, we've sinned and committed iniquity. Well, what have we done? We have done wickedly and rebelled. How did that rebellion look? By departing from your precepts or literally your commandments and your judgments. In other words, God says, here's what's good. Here's what's bad. Here's what's right. Here's what's wrong. And we said, we hear you, God, but we disagree. 
We think we know better. And we decided what was just and unjust, what was right and not right. This is so true. That's why they're in captivity, because for years they had departed from the commandments of God. So when Daniel says these things, we can understand what he's experienced. We can understand what Israel has experienced. He says, this is how he addresses God. This is why he feels there's a connection here. How you see God will often be connected to how you see yourself. So he says, God is great. That speaks of God's magnitude. God is great and awesome. Or some of your Bibles may say dreadful. Or maybe another word is used there. The word awesome, to me, it just doesn't do it. It just doesn't get it because when I read the word awesome, I think there needs to be a dude in there somewhere. Like, God is awesome, dude. (laughs) Or dude, that's awesome. We use the word differently. Awesome means reverential awe. Reverential awe. Well, that sounds good, pastor, but what does that mean? I'm going to help you feel it. Are you ready? Picture, if you would, an American flag. Picture the American flag laid out here right on the floor. And then picture somebody with muddy boots coming and stomping and jumping all over the American flag. How does that make you feel? Make you feel angry? Make you feel hurt? It's very disrespectful. Now imagine putting Jesus on a cross. Or imagine putting Jesus out there and having someone come and stomp on him with his feet. The greatest disrespect is the rejection of God's only son whom he loved. If you want to disrespect God, who is to be respected, God deserves reverential awe. That means I would never do something to disrespect God. But yet, to discard his commandments, to throw out his statutes and his justice, and to spit on his son or to hang his son on a cross is to say, we don't respect you, we don't trust you, we don't like what you say, we know better. So you understand a little bit about what Daniel's responding to. He also says, not only is God to be revered, but he's also faithful. And look at this, it says he's merciful with those who love him with those who are faithful to him, who are committed to him in a relationship, you experience God's, it's the Hebrew word chesed, and it means loving kindness. So you have to throw out that notion that there's a God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament. Same God. He is full of love. And that love is fully expressed to you and experienced by you when you are loyal to him. Let's keep on pressing on. And we'll come back to Jeremiah 29 in a few minutes. Look at verse six. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. So we've ignored your word, and we've also ignored the people that are speaking your word. Guys like Jeremiah. Jeremiah 25.3. Jeremiah said, look, I've been preaching for 20 years, 23 years exactly. And for 23 years, he told Israel, okay, got to get right with God. Bad things are coming. If you don't listen to God, if you don't turn away from your idols and turn back to God, Bad things are going to happen. And they said, oh, yeah, get out of here, Jeremiah. What do you know? We like our lives. We're safe. We're not in trouble. And they ignored Jeremiah. They ignored Elisha and Elijah, some of the greatest prophets God raised up during some of the darkest times in Jewish history. And none of them were able to sway the people to turn back to God on any long-term basis. There were some high watermarks and some low watermarks, but ultimately they ended up going into captivity. Jeremiah was preaching, the end is near. 
there were two pastors at the side of the road standing and holding up a sign that read, the end is near. Turn yourself around now before it's too late. And they planned to hold up these signs to each passing car. Leave us alone, you religious nuts, is what the first driver said as he sped by. And from around the curve, they heard screeching tires and a big splash. Do you think, said the one pastor to the other, we should just put up a sign that says bridge out instead? I think you know, I think we understand that we live in the last days. We're experiencing things in our country that we have not experienced before. We're experiencing things in our world that we haven't experienced before. And whatever you think about prophecy, it's worth studying. Daniel is not just studying the word. He's studying prophecy. What God says about the future and the future for Daniel is now. He's living in what was the future for Jeremiah. And this is what's driving his prayer. Verse 7 No, Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face as it is this day. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off and all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness, relationship terms, which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. You know, for years, the seeker-friendly church movement did damage to the body of Christ because we never want to talk about sin. Bill Hybels, Willow Creek Church, he actually, years later, had to go back and say, we were wrong. By ignoring sin, we made a mistake. Countless number of churches followed the leadership in the seeker-friendly movement of, well, we don't want to talk about sin. We want people to come, and we want them to be happy and enjoy coming, and we want to help them in their lives but we won't talk about sin because that's an unpopular topic. And the result of that is you get growing pride and disrespect for God. But boy, did I mention confession is really healthy to do? In your marriage, in the church, there's nothing that will disarm a conflict like personal confession. You've marked Jeremiah 29. Go there with me if you would. Look at verse 10. This is a letter that Jeremiah wrote from Jerusalem, sent it to Babylon, to where the captives, the exiles were. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon. You don't need a PhD to understand that. Okay, I got it. I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. Okay, again, you don't have to have a PhD in theology to say, okay, he means 70 years and he's going to take us back to Jerusalem. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. Whatever God does in November, his thoughts are of a future and a hope for us. Not to bring evil against us. Then, he says, then at that time, after 70 years, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. Do you know why Daniel is praying? Because God said to pray. Daniel could have prayed at year 35. Wouldn't have meant the same. Wouldn't have happened. But when Daniel saw the word of God lining up with his timing and God said, I'm going to work my will out through the prayers of my people. Daniel said, I'm on it, God. I'm your man. And the kind of prayer he prayed, this is so important. He didn't just pray, God bless our nation. And that's kind of what we pray sometimes. Oh, God, just bless America. God bless America. I'm all for blessing in America. But 
We want sometimes the blessing from God, but we want it without relationship with God himself. And look what Jeremiah said here. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me. Oh, precious people. We are so busy seeking the gifts, but ignoring the giver. Do you want God or do you just want blessing? Oh God, I come to church because my family needs, my money is bad. So I come to church for a little while so I get blessed. Then I leave and do my own thing. God is looking for people that trust him every day, that are willing to continue to strive with him, to walk with him. It's him. Do you want God? And I hope you say yes. So you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. So God working, Daniel's prayer, Daniel's reading, God acting. So go back with me to verse eight. Oh Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. And for Daniel, it's not just national, it's personal too. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Though we have rebelled against him, We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, our God, to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. Daniel was familiar not just with Jeremiah. Who else was Daniel familiar with? He was familiar with Moses. He read the books of Leviticus. I heard a pastor one time say, we're never going to study in this church the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is where we learn that it's blood that atones for sin. J. Vernon McGee said, most important book, if he had one book of the Bible to read, it would be Leviticus. You don't understand the cross unless you understand the sacrificial system laid out in Leviticus. And Daniel understood Leviticus. The life of the flesh is in the blood and I've given it for atonement. So he learned Leviticus 26. I won't read it to you, but you can read Leviticus 26 and you can see that right there, God said, if you turn away from me, I'm going to carry you captive so your land can rest. That's a summary. Verse 12. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us there in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. Oh man, have you ever known someone that was just so full of pride that the only way to reach them was through some really difficult circumstance? Like you talk to them and you talk to them and things get worse and things get worse and things get worse and they just rebel and rebel and rebel and then disaster has to come. God speaks to us in our joys and our blessings, but he shouts to us in our pain. So sometimes God's plan is disaster because That's what happens when you reject God. I mean, pastor, okay, but we live in the new covenant. Read Romans chapter one, where God gives people over to their debased mind. All God has to do is to say, you don't want me? Okay, you're left to figure it out yourself. And it may be that life in America has to devolve. Maybe we have to have some cultural calamity to go, we've made a mess of it. We thought we could do it without you. Do you know that feeling personally? You ever tried to live life without 
God, without his truth, without his judgments, without his commands. And you make a mess of things. We've got a hard enough time with his commands. And God may have to let us make a bigger mess of things before people turn back to him. And this is what he says. All this disaster is upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. The prayer was a prayer of repentance. The prayer God is looking for, whether it's prayed in Fluvanna County on a Sunday morning or it's prayed in Washington, D.C. on a Saturday night, the prayer God looks for from his people is prayer of repentance, to turn away from sin and turn to God. And oh boy, God is right there. If any of you here this morning, you don't know God, you've walked your own way, you've done your own thing, you've lived sort of rebelliously, God is a God of forgiveness. It said it right there. He's a God of mercy and forgiveness. He doesn't want to hold those things against you. His son died so he wouldn't have to. All of his anger, all of God's punishment, all of that taken by Jesus so you can come confidently and receive blessing and life from God. But you have to want it. You have to turn away from the former life and turn to God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. It's not rocket science. It's verse 14. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind because they didn't pray and brought it upon us the things in the past that led to where they are. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does. You'll never say, well, God was wrong in that. God always does what's right. He's righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. It doesn't get any clearer than that, does it, church? And I know Sunday morning, pastor, it's Sunday morning. I invited somebody to watch you live stream. You're supposed to be funny and exciting. Sorry. I've made this commitment to teach through the entirety of the word and to pray that God would develop a mature and healthy Christian family, at least here at Calvary Chapel, Fluvanna. And part of that is recognizing your weakness and your inability and your inconsistency and meeting God there in his strength and his forgiveness and his compassion. Do you know what I'm talking about? And so that's why I feel, oh, pastor, this is heavy. I know it's heavy, but it's great. When you get this deep down in your heart and you feel free to be transparent and to be honest and say, yeah, you know, I've told you my confession is someday the real pastor is going to show up here. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just a man like you, just trying to serve the Lord and figure out how it works in my life. And I've made a lot of mistakes in ministry. I'm going to make mistakes with you. I'm going to say wrong things. I'm going to preach way too long when everybody's tired and ready to go home. Might happen sometime. But the beauty of it is we recognize it together. It's not them or those people or that group. The problem is me. I'm still inconsistent. I still am selfish. I still need Jesus. I still need forgiveness. I still need grace from you. You still need grace from each other. We still need grace from God. And the minute we forget that, 
things begin to go out of control. So we'll read all the way to the end and we'll close out. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary that had been desolate for the whole time they'd been in captivity. And Lord, we want your face to shine on America. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds. Hey Lord, we're not saying, hey, look how good we are. Respond to our goodness. We're coming to you because of how merciful you are. The word mercy, you can circle that right next to that. The word womb, W-O-M-B, womb. It wouldn't make sense if you said, but because of your great womb. That doesn't make any sense. But what that expresses in their culture is the womb is a place of nurturing and compassion and care for the unborn child. In the womb, the mother's body cares for, protects, provides for that unborn baby, that fetus. God uses a feminine picture to talk about how compassionate he is. And that's why we come to God, not because he's a wicked God who wants to judge and be mean all the time. He is a compassionate God and he responds to humility. It's tender love. Oh Lord, verse 19, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. 